Welcome to the Building a Story Brand podcast, where we believe if you confuse, you'll lose. Noise is the enemy, and creating a clear message is the best way to grow your business. I'm your host, Donald Miller. I'm joined by my co-host, J.J. Peterson. Hello, J.J. Hello, Don. J.J., confession. Go. Did you ever buy one of the WOW best of albums? (laughs) (laughs) Have you ever done it? I did. I had lots of them. one? I think I had like five or six, truthfully, like each year, because it was like every year they did It really was, like everything on the, you know, everything they played 50 million times on the radio, you could get in one CD. (laughs) Yes. I think I bought a couple of those too. But then they like went too far. They went into like dance, like subcategories. I really did. I really did have, I had a lot. I'm a big compilation, I'm a compilation kind of guy. Yeah. Did you make mixtapes when you were young? Yeah. Yeah, did you make, oh, did you off ever, the radio. Yeah, where you would hold up your tape recorder to the radio to like, and I you're like waiting that. for. I remember waiting for hours for Beastie Boys to come on, right, and then like, and then like as soon as you would hear like coming up next, it's like, oh, get the recorder yeah, really quick. Yeah, I, I did that. I think I remember Howard Jones. I was always waiting for Howard Jones to come on, and I was like dive across my bedroom yes, with my other to tape hold recorder on to tape recorder. Oh, so you could get it. Yes, I'm. Lost I'm a comp- are the days. I'm a compilation guy. I mean, I love. Of buffets. Um, I love. Um, I enjoy uh, skewers. Like I enjoy skewers. skewers. Like when you, skewers is a compilation. You got yeah, some vegetables. You yeah, got some vegetables. Meat, and meat, yeah, and like that's the kind of stuff I really enjoy. I love mixing and matching and putting like my favorites together so I get little bites. Then I have a gift for you. Yeah. Today's podcast uh-huh. is a compilation <laughs> podcast, I know, which is I love. I get so excited it's about the this best stuff. of 2017. Mm-hmm. And you say, Don, it's not, you know, that's a New Year's thing. No, we have so much good stuff. Well, last year was the most popular podcast we did, right? The best of 2016. So we're going to do it twice. We're going to do it halfway through the year. Yes, we are halfway through the year. (laughs) Which is insane. And it just seems unbelievable. We're doing the best of 2017 so So far. far. Mm -hmm. So we're going to play clips that everybody really loved. So if you're catching up, it's a fantastic way to catch up. If you need a reminder... This is a great way to get a reminder. Yeah. And if you bought WOW compilation CDs <laughs> and you, you, you missed them. If you love skewers. This is a callback <laughs> to that. So first, we can't delay. we got yeah. a long way to go here. Yep. We're going to listen to John Lowry. He's a negotiation expert. Yeah, He works for Lipscomb University. They spend a million dollars a month building new buildings, and he negotiated all the contracts yeah. and everything for everything. Yeah. The stuff that he talks about in this podcast, I think about all the time. Yeah. It's just such practical advice. Okay, so here is a clip from my conversation with John Lowry. One of the first things that we understand about negotiation based on your material and your course, this was very eye-opening to me, are that there are really a couple kinds of negotiators, and they have different objectives in mind. There's the competitive negotiator, and then there is the cooperative negotiator. And we need to realize early on in a negotiation when somebody is wired as a competitor or when somebody is wired as a cooperative negotiator because it totally changes our strategy. Explain to me the difference between, you sometimes call them X and Y when you're actually lecturing on this, but explain to me the difference between a competitive style and a cooperative style. Well, it all has to do in how people approach problems. And some of us, when uh, we find ourselves in a problem or we find ourselves trying to put a deal together, we naturally get a bit more competitive. Uh, That's kind of how we're wired. Mm -hmm. There's others of us that we approach the same problem or we're trying to put the same deal together and naturally our approach is to be more cooperative. And the reality is, is that both processes, both approaches can be effective. 
However, both of them have pitfalls as well. So it's like folding your arms, Don. Mm -hmm. uh, if you just fold your arms, uh, there's a natural way that we do it. Some of us have the left arm on top. Some of us have the right arm on top. Right. But the reality is, is there's another way to do it. Uh, right. You can put the right arm on top, but if you do that, it, for some, feels very awkward and mm -hmm. very uncomfortable. So they just don't do it that way. But the reality is, and where we need to go in terms of thinking about being more sophisticated negotiators, is to recognize that there are some negotiations to where once we recognize that we're dealing with a very competitive person, we've got to strategically respond to how it is that we're dealing with that person. Yeah. Now, many times people make the mistake of thinking, well, I've got to try to change that person. Right. That's too hard. You're not going to change the person across the table. What you have to change is yourself, perhaps. Mm -hmm. And you have to go from doing what is intuitive and what is comfortable and turning in that behavior into something that is strategic. Yep. And so what that means is that people have to know the nature of the game that they're playing. Who is it that they're dealing with? Is it a competitively inclined person or a cooperatively inclined person? Is it someone that's looking for their own win or is it someone that is truly looking for a mutual win? And that's how I understood it was the competitive person really sees every scenario as kind of a win-lose scenario and they intend to win Absolutely. and you are probably going to lose. The cooperative is a win-win person. They're looking for mutual wins. And it was interesting to me because one of the things, I'm, I'm a win-win guy. I'm looking for a win for my clients. I'm looking for a win for anybody I'm negotiating with, anything with. It was interesting to me that you guys had a pretty judgment-free view of the win-lose guy, which I didn't. I thought, yeah. oh, these win-lose guys. But you said, no, this is a style of negotiating. Uh, they're not lying to you about the fact that you're going to lose. <laughs> you're just willing to lose because you're in a tough position where you're going to lose. And I'd forgotten about this, but shortly after that course, I was negotiating a real estate deal or an office kind of thing and realized pretty quickly I'm negotiating the win-lose person. So I changed my style. I no longer thought about how can I help this person win because they're not interested in helping me win. And I wrote down the parts of the deal that I would want. And if I don't get this part of the deal, I'm going to walk away. And sure enough, I didn't get my part of the deal. And so I was able to walk away. Wouldn't have done that with a win-win negotiator. But because I was with a win-lose at the point where I thought this is where I move into personal lose territory, I walked away. And I walked away without judgment. This yeah. is just the kind of negotiator that yeah. they are. And I didn't lose. You yeah. know, they didn't win. They went on and did that to somebody else. Yeah, well, it's really interesting. There are you know, some people, and if you read a lot of books about negotiation, I mean, there's a lot of ink out there about the win-win approach. Mm -hmm. But the reality is, is that there are a lot of folks that, like you said, are just not interested in the win-win approach. And so even though that may be a preferred style, the reality is we have to know strategically right. how to deal with the person that doesn't bring that particular approach to the table. Mm -hmm. And so... As we think about this dynamic of competitive versus cooperative, what I think, Don, is the person who is equipped to get the best deal is the person who knows when to be competitive mm -hmm. and can do it effectively and the person who knows when it's appropriate to be cooperative and can do it effectively, mm -hmm. which means that people have to become much more dynamic be able to, in their skill yeah, set. you got to exactly. be able to do both. Let me just ask this for practical purposes. Uh, let's say you're a win-win person. You realize you're knee-deep in a deal, and you realize you're with a win-lose person. You're with a competitive person. What are the steps? What are some things that that person, the non-competitive person or the cooperative person, needs to understand going into it? First thing is they need to respond in kind. 
And so, so if, if they come tough at you, you just got to go tough back. You got to go back. Yeah, because that's the other thing. When you're dealing with a competitive person versus a cooperative person, you're dealing with a win-lose person, they get tough on you. It's intuitive to think, well, I'll just be kind of nice, and then they'll turn around and be nice. They just told you they're not interested. That's not the game they're playing. That's right. And Believe what, them. And what will happen <laughs> is they will take advantage of you. Yeah. And so the more nice you get, as you described it, uh, the more aggressive they will get. They see weakness, and they go, oh, this, guy's, go this guy's putty. And so it's counterintuitive, but interestingly enough, and this where negotiation becomes so fun to think about, is the way in which you get someone to become more cooperative with you mm-hmm. is actually to become competitive with them. Mm-hmm. Because remember, they want to win. That's what they're out to do. And you have the ability to cause them to lose. Mm-hmm. And so either by walking away from the deal in which no one gets the deal, or to demand terms that are very difficult for them to get to. And there is the first moment where you require them to make a strategic decision about, do I want to go through this process and end up losing? Or am I willing perhaps to be a bit more cooperative? That is the critical moment that you want to push them into. But it may require you as a negotiator, especially those of us that are more cooperatively inclined to do something that's very uncomfortable. And that is play that big competitive move. All right, once again, you know, I've already said, I said it many times. He saved me a ton of money on a lawnmower. (laughs) Just that conversation. (laughs) And then later, a bunch of money on a piece of property. It saved me like a hundred times, a thousand times over what I paid for, because I actually went to his course. Yeah. Did you really? Yeah. Yeah. Tim and I went. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. We had a blast. It's actually really fun. That's so cool. John Lowry, L-O-W-R-Y. If you want to go to his course, it's well worth it. If you want to listen to the whole episode, it's episode 26. Just go on iTunes, find the Building a Story Brand podcast. You should probably just subscribe anyway because it's just so good. But anyway, if you just want to listen to that episode, episode 26, and you can hear the whole conversation with John Lowry. All right. This is a clip from actually episode 41. It's Mm -hmm. Alan Heinberg. Yes. One of my favorite conversations of the year. Alan is, I think he's one of the smartest guys in Hollywood. He's written for the O.C., Sex in the City, Grey's Anatomy. Uh, Grey's Anatomy. He's head writer, I think, at Grey's Anatomy. On and on and on. And he just wrote the hit movie Wonder, Wonder Woman. Woman. Yeah, I know, <laughs> which was really good. I haven't seen it yet. Yeah. I heard his fan. Betsy really loved good. it. She yeah. thought it was fantastic. Anyway, so but we we actually talked a lot about storytelling. But then he segues into this really beautiful like monologue. Of course, only like a dramatic writer could yeah. <laughs> about how we have to serve our customers and it, the story is all about them. Of course, that's one of the biggest principles of story brand. Probably one of the smartest guys we've ever had on the podcast. So I want you to hear this. This is definitely a favorite from so far in 2017 from episode 41. Here's a bit of my conversation with Alan Heinberg. You know, we're, we're talking to 50,000 or so business leaders, and I think they've been fascinated because there's so much overlap between what you're talking about and they're communicating about their brand. There have been very few brands. Well, first of all, brands don't often have these obligatory or climactic scene kind of payoffs in their overall epic. I mean, when a customer buys a product, you want them to feel a certain way about buying that product. But in the life of a brand, you don't necessarily have that. And the only one that I can think of is the passing of Steve Jobs, which was not the end of Apple, of course, we all know that, but it felt like the end of an era within an organization. And yet people took to the streets with candles, with flowers, with you know, around Apple stores. They had a sense of gratitude. Is it possible to create a narrative in the life of your company that is inspired by and uses the tools that you're talking about 
to compose human emotions in, in the ways that Jobs did. Have you ever given any thought to that? No, not, not until you bring it up. And I, I think you've really tapped into something true and extraordinary. And I love that you're using this podcast to explore it. I mean, I did think about the Steve Jobs part of it in that there's so much bleed over between the product that he helped develop and that Apple provided us. Mm-hmm. That's a product like a, a computer, a MacBook Air, an iPhone that is all about us. That right. it's, a, it's a mirror. You look at it and your face comes back at you no matter what. So there's so much identification between the object and yourself. There's so much bleed over. You know, we're so addicted to the screen at right. this point that you, you don't know where the product ends and you begin, which I think is, you know, for somebody who makes that product, that's the ideal scenario. So here's what I would say, because it's my role as a storyteller and my role within Shondaland and within the world of the catch, you know, it's, it's not unlike the spirit of Christianity in a certain way in which I realize that my job at the end of the day is to serve. I'm here to serve the characters. I'm here to serve the story. I'm here to serve Shonda. I'm here to serve the audience and right. to, to take them on a journey. So in some ways, if I'm a company looking to establish, you know, brand-based relationship with my consumers, with my audience, I want to be there to serve and reflect them back at themselves in a way so that when they think of my product, they think, okay, this product, this brand is an extension of who I am. And yeah. there's nothing more powerful than that. Like when you love a product or a brand so much that you wear their logo as a t-shirt, you know what I mean? You, you're basically selling the audience themselves. Like, here's how we can make you the most you you can be. You're selling them a better version of themselves. So we teach this yes. idea of, of actually communicating, defining, communicating an aspirational identity for yes. your customer and helping them live into that identity. It seems like Steve Jobs does that so well, as does Coca-Cola. I mean, if you think about Coca-Cola, their sort of aspirational identity is somebody who embraces the difficulty of life with an optimistic attitude and a, and a sense of gratitude. They've defined that as an aspirational identity, and it's in you know the songs that they choose and the and whatever and, and all the images in their commercials. Absolutely, and I think brands are rewarded for that. It's so affirming to hear you you say that. I think we forget sometimes as business leaders that there's an element of being an artist here that only benefits our brand and benefits our customers, makes them better people. We get to transform human beings' identities by selling the simplest of products. It's really true. You just end up feeling like your best self when they connect, when the brands connect with you in that way. And I think oftentimes there's a lot to be said for presenting yourself in a, it's not about us, it's about you and how we can serve you way. Do you know what I mean? I think so many of us are looking for a kind of ego validation that we do make it about us before we make it about serving others. And that even thinking about the difference between how are we better serving the customers versus how are we putting ourselves out there I think it's a valuable, it's something to look at. You can't go wrong making it about other people. Man, that guy. <laughs> Love it. I know. You need some Kleenex? <laughs> <laughs> Always. <laughs> oh, yeah. Very good. If you want to hear the whole conversation with Alan Heinberg, just check out episode 41. Go to iTunes, of course, Building a Story Brand Podcast. Look for Alan Heinberg. All right, this one is convicting. Greg McEwen wrote a book called Essentialism, and he basically says you're doing too much. Yeah. You're too busy. You're tackling too many things. Yep. Tough medicine. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I, I need to go back and re-listen to this one. You like, could probably just listen to it every morning. Yeah. 
as a reminder. Yep. It's just amazing how it creeps up. Yep. It's like stuff creeps in. So this is a good reminder for you and me. We've got to pare these things down to what's important. Greg McEwen, again, wrote a book called Essentialism. He's a consultant. He's changed the world in many ways because he helps us understand how to focus Mm -hmm. and the sacrifices that need to be made in order to focus. And I think focus is one of the most undervalued but probably the best business skill set you can have is understanding how to focus. So this one is going to directly translate not only to your bottom line in your business, but your bottom line in your life, Mm -hmm. because your family is probably struggling with the fact that you can't seem to focus. (laughs) (laughs) Here's a bit of my conversation with Breg McEwen, author of Essentialism. You know, the idea of opportunity cost is something that I think every listener understands. You know, if you go do this thing, what's it costing you to have done that rather than to have done something else? You state that even more clearly. It's perhaps the simplest way I've ever heard it stated, and that is this. Every time you say yes to something, you're saying no to something else. We usually think, should I do this or shouldn't I, without thinking, okay, but what is this costing me? What am I saying no to in order to say yes to this other thing? Can you elaborate on that a little bit? If someone is simply asking, in like a vacuum, as if there's no other reality. Is this thing a good thing? And if the answer is yes, that that's now they've, it's made it through their tests. Right. And the answers are yes. So they're going to be endlessly stressed out, just endlessly, because their life's already cram-packed full. So it's completely insufficient for being able to really be pursuing the things that matter. And so, yes, of course, we have to recognize every time we're saying yes, it's going to push something out on the other side of the closet. And so what what I'm really recommending to people is uh, first, you've got to get everything out of the closet, everything. And you evaluate each item. Is this really the best use of me? Is this really the thing that's going to matter for the long run? And if it's not, pass it. Start to minimize your contribution to that area. Maybe eventually you eliminate it altogether. What does this look like? Is this is this a, a yellow tablet with with you're just writing everything that you're involved in, everything that you're worried about? Yes. What, is that what it is? Yes. You use the post-it note exercise. Get a whole desk in front of you. Put everything out. Get it all out like you would with a closet. And and then don't just start evaluating each thing straight away. You then have to get this vision. You've got to do some of that long-term work. It's all out of your head, but now you've got to say, because otherwise, if you're not careful, you might just fill your life back up with things that are only good and to efficiently do what shouldn't even be done in the first place. Uh, So you've got to then do this visioning work so that you really start to see what it's really about for you, what your narrative's really about. You've got to take space. I mean, think of Gandhi who spent a whole year of his life, a year trying to understand what was going on and what was essential in India and why it was possible that so many Indians could be controlled by so few British. And it took him a year of exploration to figure that out. And by doing it, he found that the answer was salt. They controlled the production of salt. They could control the whole food chain. And that was where the idea came Mm. for him to walk across India, the demonstration of civil disobedience and make salt on the beaches. He was able to bring independence to the Indian people And there's no way he could have done that if he just tried to do everything that was on his plate already in in front of him. Mm -hmm. So it was by creating the space to get the long-term vision that then he could look at everything on the to-do list, so to speak, on the post-it note and see which things that you just say, no, we're not doing it. We don't have to do it. We don't have to do everything that everyone else is doing. 
All right, there you go. You mm-hmm. feel focused? I'm, I'm getting there. I'm getting there. <laughs> a, bit, a bit of a reminder. Yeah. What's one thing you're going to cut out of your life? Well, I'm going to add that podcast in. I, <laughs> really, like, I'm not quite to the cutting out yet. I need to listen to it again in order to get to that point. I, I won't name him because I think it's like way too far, but I have a friend who he got really busy, mm-hmm. and on his business card, it just has his name and no phone number, no contact information. It says, I probably can't help you. <laughs> you can say Tim's name. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely not. <laughs> anyway, yeah, focus is important. Well, if you want to hear more of my conversation with Greg McEwen, it's episode 32. Just go look up the Building a Story Brand podcast, download episode 32, and listen to the whole thing. That conversation actually segues really well into mm-hmm. the conversation with Juliet Font. Would you say, like, top three for you? Easily. This one Me really too. did, like, when I listened to this interview, one, I was, like, emotional. I guess yeah. emotional. <laughs> it, was, it, gets the, yeah, it gets you there. Yeah, it gets you there really quick. Um, but... I think the combination of Greg and then Juliet right yeah. back to back. Like we're pounding close, this one. Yeah. I think this is so important. Yeah. It, like there's it, a reason we're playing this. It's probably because you and I need to hear this a lot. <laughs> <laughs> but, like this is, we're like, oh yeah, we need to go back to that because it was so good. Yeah. You have to remind but yourself. But you have to get back to it. Well, it's all about white space. And what Juliet Funt means by white space is time away, time not thinking about the business, time to recharge your brain time without the distractions of your phone and constant communication because often that's where the ideas are and that's where the next breakthrough is going to be. I've got a road trip coming up, a three-day road trip with Lucy, my chocolate lab. (laughs) Betsy's going to fly somewhere and I'm taking three days to get there to Portland, Oregon. I know I will get to Portland ready to write the next book and I'll have a ton of content. And it's just white space. Well, even from this podcast, I do something different now. I, when I used to take a break from my desk, I would get up and maybe play a game on my phone or something like yeah. that. And she specifically talks about that. So when I get up to take a break, I leave my phone at my desk to get real white space. What's that done for you? It's huge. I really do come back to my desk ready to re-engage versus like before when I would stop playing a game, it'd be like... Okay, I've got to go. go back. Yeah, <laughs> but like now, your mind is still yep. occupied. And when we go out and play frisbee golf, I leave my phone back in the office now. Yeah, or at I, least I try to. We do that. <laughs> we do, do it like twice time, a day yeah. around here. We, we right out the Just back door, we play frisbee space. golf. Yeah. yeah, and it actually works. But I got that directly from this podcast. One of the things I love about this podcast, and we're going to get to it uh, this little segment right now, it gives you permission. Mm-hmm. Because if you have a personality that's really driven, if you feel like you need to accomplish things in order to <laughs> have a meaningful life, which I often do. This gives me permission. It says, hey, look, white space is part of accomplishing things. White space is part of being productive. And you're probably missing this part. I think it's absolutely true. And so if nothing else, I hope you get permission just to rest by listening to this. Here's a little clip of my interview with Juliet Fund. So there are so many different ways that we pay a price for the pace and cadence that gets absorbed by our bodies at work and then we bring it home. Because that sense of rushing and pushing and distraction Mm -hmm. and cell phone checking, it's just not so easy to turn it on and off. So you walk in the door and the people that love you have been waiting with great anticipation or the dog that loves you or the house that's peaceful for you has been waiting to greet you. And it's really, really difficult to all of a sudden walk across a threshold and become quiet and present. And so what we do, most of us with loved ones, is we pretend to be present. So we walk in and we have a big smile on our face and we say hello. But right behind our eyes, there is this giant machine still grinding with Mm. projects and to-dos and things in the inbox. It's just impossible to turn it off. So when we learn to practice white space at work, what happens is we become a little bit more comfortable in the pause. We have a little bit more ability to lean into it at home. 
And you asked about costs, and I think some of the costs at home I could list are, they're myriad, but I think that missing time with loved ones is probably the biggest one, that rationalization to keep picking up a laptop or a cell phone or touching something that's distracting us. The type of connection with those loved ones. So even when we're present and we're pushing a swing, but we're doing so again with the phone in our hand, there's a broken connection there. Yeah, you're not really there. And people not know. Not all the way. And they do know, especially, you know, well, everybody knows, but we were talking at lunch. I had a PetSmart client whose French bulldog ate four of her blackberries in a row and she couldn't figure <laughs> out. It's because he, the dog missed her. She's just so sick of her being absorbed in this. You brought this in other this, pet into this the house. other entity, yeah. right, all the time. But I think that there's also a theme in terms of our own health and wellness that we don't tend to talk about much because we're a business solution, but the frazzled, exhausted, anxious, stressed out part of our bodies is something that we've learned to sublimate entirely through distraction and caffeine and dopamine and all those wonderful things that keep us running, but it takes an enormous toll on our bodies. And health and wellness is not our area, but you can see when you walk into corporations and you see the way people's faces look and you see how worn they are and you see them all sleeping on planes. Why are all these grown-ups taking a nap at one o'clock in the afternoon? We're just fried, right? So I think there are myriad costs, and I think that the very, very good news is that all it takes is for senior people to start saying, I want my legacy to involve a culture at work that is sane and humane, mm. and I want my culture at work to involve the concept of thoughtfulness and a pride about ideas. And all it really takes is for senior leaders to drive in that direction. And the, the changes are very doable. It's not like it's magical that this can change. And it's not really that difficult to change it. It just needs urgency. It needs energy. Juliet, this is incredible. And I, and I think it's important for us as leaders to understand the value of this. Why are you so passionate about creating white space, both at work and at home? So the white space at work is obviously most of our life, and we think that there is an extraordinary amount of pain in the world at work that we are uniquely positioned to solve. We also mm. think that there is no reason for people to be as miserable, for work to suck as much as it does. It just It's not <laughs> it necessary. Have to. It doesn't have to. And we would love to help you with that. But um, my passion of white space at home is really about those connections with loved ones. And if I ever had to have that passion cemented even further. It was in St. Louis and I was speaking at the sales meeting and this woman came up to me and she said, um, I want to tell you a story. She said, when I was a little girl, my daddy came to me and he said, let's make a picnic and let's go get mama and let's go for a good old fashioned joy ride in the country. And they made ham and cheese sandwiches and pink lemonade and they got the little animal crackers with the white on one side and pink on the other and the dots. And they, yeah. and they took the basket to mama and they said, mama, come with us. And she said, well, I'm too busy, but you guys go and you have a great time. And they did. They had a wonderful time. They drove until the sun went down and they were laughing and singing. And he died two days later. Mm -hmm. And she told me that her mother talked about that for the rest of her life, that she didn't take the ride. Mm -hmm. And I never told the story to anybody for a very long time. And then there was this one day when I was sitting at my own kitchen table and I was working away at my laptop and I'm banging away at the laptop. And my husband was in the backyard with our boys who were then two years old and four years old. And the babies were both naked. They each had their own hose and they were washing the car. <laughs> and he sends me a text from the backyard into the kitchen. It says, it's really cute out here. Do you have a second? And I texted back really fast, sorry, busy. Mm. And then that story came back and it picked me up 
and I, I was so nervous I knocked the chair over because I was just rushing out there to make sure that I didn't miss this. And I think that there is not a mother or father in the world who hasn't said, I'm too busy for you. And there isn't a mother or father in the world who hasn't pretended to watch someone build Legos and really been thinking about a spreadsheet. But if we can remind each other one moment at a time to build in the habit of the pause, it makes it so much more possible for us to say yes when the ride comes to our door. And I, I do believe that no one will ever regret not working a little harder, but I do believe that we'll regret missing that. Beautiful. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think that saves lives. I mean, I don't mean to be overly dramatic. But it's okay to be. <laughs> when we're talking about we saving all lives, about story, right? tends to be dramatic. Yeah. I mean, if anything, it saves marriages, saves yeah. families. Yeah. Because, we, you know, we're just so driven. And, and I love that. I'm, I'm nothing against being driven. I really love it. But I just think not at the expense of the quality of your life. Yep. It's not going to work. If you want the whole conversation with Juliet Font, honestly, people have written in. It's one of their favorite podcast episodes we've ever done. She's just a terrific human being. Uh, you want to download episode 40 of the Building a Story Brand podcast. You can find it on iTunes. I was really honored. And maybe a little bit nervous, i got to be <laughs> yes. honest with you. Actually, I wasn't quite nervous because I'd gotten to know him a little bit. Yeah. He was just such a humble man. Yeah. When he was in our workshop, I was nervous teaching <laughs> in front of Don Schneider. <laughs> Don Schneider is the final clip that we're going to play. And Don is responsible, created six of the top ten Super Bowl commercials of all time. <laughs> yeah. More than 50% of them. Yeah. Was Don Schneider? He knows a thing or two about story. Yeah. So when I was up in front teaching at the workshop, yeah. and I'm looking out at him, and like if he would give me a nod, I would like giggle inside. <laughs> you know, yeah. I'd be like, Don Schneider thinks that that was a good. <laughs> like, I found comment. myself. I found myself in the workshop keep, keep continuing to refer to him. I yeah, I heard it's <laughs> like, like right, Don. Right, right. Is that true? Is that true? Is what I said yeah. true? <laughs> yeah. And he is such a good, like he's just such a good person and so humble. He is. And he was, yeah, you would ne- he came yeah, like ready so to kind. learn and. I loved being around him yeah. because he's fun and creative and you can see like immediately where all this stuff came from. Well, he was behind campaigns for Pepsi, HBO, GE, some of the most creative, thoughtful advertising that you enjoyed that was also just yeah. really entertaining. Yep, He's behind it. And what I love about him, it's very interesting because I've had a history as an artist. I wrote books, I wrote <laughs> literature and I loved it as a storyteller and I thought of myself as an artist. And it's interesting to have transitioned into business that there was a temptation to sort of lose that side of myself because you're just studying grids yeah. and charts and numbers and beginning of day numbers and all that kind of stuff. And Don really helped me understand that you got to keep that in play. You have yeah. to keep that artistic side in play. He really, even though he's made companies hundreds of millions of dollars, he still just sees himself as an artist. Yeah, It's a really encouraging conversation. So I think you'll be inspired by this. And he also just gets some practical wisdom on how you should position your brand. I think you're going to love this interview. I don't want to delay any longer. Here's a bit of my conversation with Don Schneider. Don, is you're the one who actually creates that value. You create more than the value of a can of Pepsi. You right. create something else. And do you ever sit and think about what is the aspirational identity or what is the feeling I want people to have? Because for their dollar fifty for a can of Pepsi or a dollar for a can of Pepsi, they're getting the Pepsi and they're getting whatever it is that you're creating at the agency. Right. Um, the answer is no. We did you not, don't think about we that. We did not approach it like that. It's kind of like when people analyze Bob Dylan's lyrics hmm. and they tell him what he meant and Dylan goes, really? <laughs> I, I don't know what that is. <laughs> what we do is we have a 30,000 foot, this is what we did back then, and we felt it in our gut and did it feel right 
and it, it comes from a ton of experience and knowing uh, it's it's hard to explain you said something interesting where you can't really describe what it is that you like about this ad right. well we purposely did that when you could tell we called it seeing the strings you're not supposed to see the strings especially in america people are so tired of being marketed to mm. and they're so sensitive to it that if you see the strings like hey we know you want this so therefore we're going to give you a little bit of this and now you like us right well we we found that people are doing i call it the heisman trophy <laughs> they yeah, put yeah, their yeah. hand up yeah. they move away because we've been marketed now for 50 years and they don't want to be marketed to mm -hmm. so we disguise the pull so we do more of the feeling just the these guys are the kind of company i want to be um, is there with. anything a, a sub five million dollar company can do to create that kind of identity to live in that kind of identity to offer a feeling to I'm, a customer yeah it's a, it's a really good question and uh you know all the examples i'm using there are big budgets involved so yeah exactly like the and they have the luxury question. of not saying go down to your local whatever and right. pay 299 dollars. i mean i mean if i i would guess my thirty thousand foot answer would be this to come up with which is what exactly what you do come up with that north star what what we stand for yeah and make sure that every aspect of who we are is loyal to that and is informed by that and then that synergy, I think it starts to have some, some value as everything works together. Like, and, and this is bad because I'm going to use Apple as an example. Mm -hmm. And it's funny how we all use Apple as an example. For Hard every, not to. For everything. Hard not to. But think about them. A lot of people talk about what their big overall thought is and how they're thinking different and creating products that for a world where you want to think different. But the reality is most people don't see messaging from Apple. What people see is... Their friend talks them into buying an iPhone, mm -hmm. and they get the box, and they get it home. They hold it in their hand. They feel the weight of the box, and it's just something better about it. It's a little, and then they unpeel it, and they look at the paper that it's been packed in, and it's a beautiful, very smooth tooth coat with incredible, impeccable printing on it, and they lift it up, and the suction, and we all know this, right? Yeah. The suction <laughs> on that box is so beautifully fit. At this point, the story that's being told, and they're telling a story. Yeah. Well, it's a question. Who would go to this trouble to make something so impeccably and wonderfully beautiful? You haven't even gotten to the phone yet. Right. You're, you're still digging on the suction of the, of the box and the vacuum, and then you open it up, and there it is, sitting there beautifully in this perfect form-fit plastic thing that fits exactly there, and the headphones are tucked in. So they understood, and Steve Jobs understood, that... Every aspect to the tiniest atom had to be loyal to this overall idea of just excellence. And I think that for, a, uh, there's a long way to go, but for a five million and under brand to try to get a North Star and make sure that every bit of messaging ladders up to who they are. I mean, the bar's pretty high for Apple and it's hard for these guys to do that. But when you do that, you do start to get some play with everything and people go, oh yeah, I get those guys and I, yeah. I know who they are. I want to be Don Schneider. <laughs> yeah. My wife actually I thinks he looks hair. like John Hamm. Yeah, his hair. Did you think he, he looked like John Hamm? No. 
Because he has this long hair that yeah. he just kind of runs his fingers through. And it's like, <laughs> I can't pull that off. That is so cool. <laughs> he is cool. He told me once, yeah, I've been away for a little while. Sorry, I didn't return a call. And I was like, oh, what were you doing? He said, yeah, I was kayaking around Cuba. <laughs> yes. So, <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> what were you doing? I'm mowing the yard. That's what I was doing. Anyway, fantastic conversation with Don. We love Don. If you want to listen to the whole conversation, of course, I highly recommend it. Go to episode 27, just go to iTunes, Building a Story Brand Podcast, and listen to all of episode 27. You'll hear the whole conversation with Don Schneider. JJ, we are about to leave for Portland, Oregon. Yes, we are. <laughs> we were, yes, so we for are. those of you who don't know, we have a front porch at our office. Mm-hmm. And it's actually the house next door to mine and Bessie's. We uh-huh. just bought the house next door and turned it into our office because we didn't <laughs> want to commute. And uh, we're sitting around the front porch, and it's starting to get warm here in Tennessee. Yes, this was, a, this very was warm. maybe like six weeks ago. Yeah. And it gets humid. It gets hot. Mm-hmm. And somebody made the statement of, boy, wouldn't it be nice to like spend the summer in Portland? And we all looked at each other and went, why not? Why not? Why, why wouldn't we? <laughs> We're all on laptops. <laughs> so we're yeah. literally taking the entire staff to Portland, Oregon yeah. for the summer. And we're going to do a workshop there. Yeah. Yeah. And, and Our it, first workshop, first live workshop, first live outside, workshop of outside of Nashville, which is fantastic. And what better city to do it in? Because it is so nice in uh, Portland in the summer. Yeah, it's the perfect time to be there. It's a high in the 80s, uh-huh. not a cloud in the sky, low in the 60s. So you feel great all day, and you just put that sweatshirt on? I sweat right now in Tennessee opening my door. Like, turning, (laughs) like, that kind of exercise makes me sweat here right now. It's it's so nasty, and I'm, I mean, I love Tennessee, but right now, I'm so ready to be in Portland. Well, here's what your future holds. You're going to be, Voodoo Donuts, Mm -hmm. and you're going to be sitting in an outdoor cafe every single night, writing something in your journal. And you're gonna watch hipsters go by on unicycles. <laughs> you're gonna watch. You're gonna watch a bike rider you know, ride by Whole Foods and yell, "Corporate!" About, did I tell you? <laughs> last time I was in Portland, or maybe two times ago, I saw human bowling in the parking lot. Doesn't surprise <laughs> and, me. I mean, in the park. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. People were putting people on a. I think it was a just like this furniture dolly and they were throwing them through trash cans like in the middle of the park i remember last time i was there sitting in an outdoor cafe and a guy rode by on a john deere tractor it's like that's what he uses probably drinking that's what he commutes with if you've not spent time in portland i think it's the best city in the country it yeah. really is fantastic if for no other reason than the food yeah the food is unbelievable i think the new york times actually said portland has surpassed new york wow. and the new york times said that if you want a great vacation in a beautiful place that is not hot, <laughs> show up a little early for the Story Brand Workshop. We start on Sunday night, the 13th, and we're all day 14th and all day 15th. That's Monday and Tuesday. So if you could actually come in on a Friday, you got all day Saturday, you got all day Sunday to enjoy the city, and you can justify the expense because we're going to make you truckloads of cash. Yeah. <laughs> True to the corporate spirit of Portland, Oregon. <laughs> Yeah. We're, we're kind of insurgents going in there. Yeah, a yeah. little bit. Little bit. <laughs> if you're trying to save the environment, you can use our messaging platform to do that, As too. Well, yeah. yeah, it works for Not anything. Yeah, doesn't matter. Left, right, <laughs> green. <laughs> Are you denying the existence of global warming? We can help you. We can help you tell that story. <laughs> I can help you, you tell that story. I mean. <laughs> anyway, you can register online at storybrand.com. We'd love to see you in Portland. I promise you there's going to be some nice energy in yeah. that room because oh, yeah. we will be rested and ready to help you clarify your message and create marketing material that works. Again, just go to storybrand.com. It's August 13th, 14th, and 15th, and we would love to see you there. It's going to fill up. Yep. Yeah, and so we're going to have to close registrations when we get to about 60 people, and we're going to get there 
pretty quickly. So go to storybrand.com, register right now, then buy your plane ticket or do a road trip like me and Lucy. Yeah. And we'll see you there. All right, JJ, we have another episode where we're doing best of. Yeah. Because we couldn't quite cover everybody this time. Next time, we're actually going to play clips from Lee Cockrell, who was the executive vice president of operations at Disney. He was a fascinating conversation. Mm -hmm. And then Shalene Johnson, who talks about how to scale up your business. So some of you are going, hey, how do I go from a million to five million? She's going to help you answer those questions. Stephen Mansfield, one of the most popular podcasts we ever did, were these uh, sort of like 10 symptoms that you're about to fall apart in life. Yes. And we got letters and social media lit up. Really one of the most fantastic conversations. He wrote a book called The Search for God and Guinness. He also wrote The Faith of George W. Bush and The Faith of Barack Obama. This guy's like around powerful people a lot. And he has seen some patterns in lives right before they fall apart. So you're going to want to listen to that, especially if you're in any kind of leadership position. Ian Cron talks about the Enneagram, which we're all Enneagram geeks around here. (laughs) You know, the Enneagram argues there's nine different personality types and you need to understand them. If you want to nurture people and make people like you more, you got to understand how they're wired. He just launched a podcast. He just launched a podcast. It's called Typology. Oh, I'm going to have to check it out. Yeah. Actually, you know what? I just got an email from him. He That's, wants to, it was yeah. announcing that it launched. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, well, I'm going to check that out. Ian's brilliant. And then finally, Ken Blanchard, one of my heroes, and Claire Diaz-Ortiz, who have a book called One Minute Mentoring. And of course, Ken wrote uh, One Minute Manager years and years ago. I think it sold about 250 million copies. All of China bought it. (laughs) (laughs) And this is uh, a conversation about the importance of mentoring. So that is the next episode. If you liked this one, all these best of and greatest hits and little sound bites, you're going to love the next one too. Again, we're doing this mid-year because the end of last year, we just had too much to choose from. And so we're going to do it twice. We're going to do it here now, and we're going to do it at the end of the year. But uh, another best of next week week. All right, music from this episode of the Building a Story Brand podcast is by Andrew Bell. You can listen to Andrew's music on Spotify or on iTunes. I want to thank you as always for listening to the Building a Story Brand podcast, where we believe if you confuse, you'll lose. Noise is the enemy, and creating a clear message is the best way to grow your business. 